This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the show. It's Frankly Speaking, another hour of hot potato issues in South Africa. Rory Sang Shabalala is still not with us. He's still gallivanting in the UK somewhere. We look forward to having him back uh, sometime very, very soon. And um, I, we are continuing this series, uh, which has been fascinating. Last week, we spoke to Zuelan Zimavavi. Uh, you know who he is, and you have to listen to that show. It's absolutely mind-blowing. The guy is a genius. He's got so much information in him uh, about what he thinks uh, could uh, change the needle in, in the economic situation in South Africa. And uh, we're asking that question, frankly speaking, is there a way to change South Africa's economic challenges? Uh, we've been speaking to people in education. We've been speaking to people in labor. And now we've got uh, the entrepreneurs. It's the entrepreneurs' turn. I'm speaking to two very, very cool guys. Um, entrepreneurs in South Africa and we're going to ask them what they think uh, the way out here is and what changes we could make to really challenge and change the South African uh, challenges that we face right now. Of course, we welcome your comments on the show. Hook us up on WeChat. You can go to cliffcentral.com um, and you can just contact us and speak to us. What are your thoughts? What are your questions? If you have any, you can hit us up on Twitter as well, at yebo underscore L-E-V-Y. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Lots of comments last week. I'm sure there'll be a few this week as well. Um, so where do we begin? Good, good, good day. Good hellos. Good hello. Uh, good hellos, good gentlemen. Morning. How, how, are you, how are you, Andrew? <laughs> Oh, We're speaking to uh, Ross Essen and Josh Cherry. They are the brilliance and the genius genii behind a very cool little spot, a burger joint. We are speaking burgers today. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, and the reason we're speaking burgers is because I am a vegetarian and I had the most incredible burger at your spot, uh, this beautiful chickpea burger. And we had a discussion and started getting talking. Uh, is it chickpea? I can say that, right? Nah, we're still trying to figure out the recipe. <laughs> It was a beautiful vegetarian burger uh, here in, in Rosebank and um, just super pumped by it and just chatted to the owners and realized that there's a lot more than just a burger going on here. And it made me think that we need to speak to young entrepreneurs in South Africa to understand what is their vibe? What are they feeling at the moment? What are the challenges? And what was fascinating when speaking to these guys, just a little bit under the surface, we hear how hardcore they both are. So uh, we'll get into it a little bit. Um, Ross, maybe as the South African, we'll start with you, you know, because we're not winning many things, but we might as well win the conversation, you know. Um, <laughs> you, you've got a, a degree uh, in economics. You've seen a lot of things in your time in terms of you've worked with some big advisory services in South Africa. Help me through what you think some of the challenges that South Africa faces right now. Sure. Okay. It's, it's a pretty broad list of things to talk about. <laughs> well, what, what's, what's, what is your big challenge at the moment? What do you think is, is, is seriously affecting South Africa in your, in your spectrum, in your scope? Um, I think we do. I mean, from an economics perspective, I think the, the real challenge is how do you get more people to participate in the economy? And how do you get more people to have an income that can spend on things that they want to spend money on? Mm. Difficult, isn't it? With with uh, you know the stats that just came through, which which um, I find quite scary, um, done by some interesting report. I've got to I've got to pull it up here. The the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor report. You heard of that report before? No, I've never heard of that. I know, I'm me neither. But apparently, uh, in 2015. So the report's done yearly. They're about to release the, the, the next one. 2015 to 2016, 62% of entrepreneurial businesses closed in South Africa, which is massive. It feels like too much of a bigger figure. That's what's how I the, read it. What's the stat? The normal stat is... The normal stat. This no, no, the global, stat. <laughs> the global stat something like in the... Only like 30 to 40% of businesses survived their first three years. Three years, yeah. yeah. That's so, so it depends on what that is. Is it yeah. 60 it's, it feels high. And then if you take into account that SMEs make up 91% of formalized business in South Africa and 34% of the GDP, we're talking big numbers here, right, guys? I mean, if we seeing the state, I mean, how do you feel in terms of the status of entrepreneurship in South Africa? And maybe, Josh, maybe we need to bring you in here as, as, as the local foreigner. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, thanks. <laughs> the... I don't know. I I feel like the way I relate to sort of having these discussions tend to be, I, I still feel like a bit of a visitor. So mm -hmm. I sort of sit on the outside a little bit and watch it. And I spend a lot of time comparing about my own experiences in the States. And so 
I think oftentimes when I hear the conversation, the entrepreneurial environment down here, I, I tend to find the language tends to be much more around these kind of tiny micro entrepreneurial spaces, mm -hmm. particularly in the main market in those areas. Um, and I, that language doesn't exist as much in the U S okay. the U S it tends to be sort of small businesses are probably loans between 50 to $150,000 mm -hmm. is what the loan rates are. They are for small shops like franchisees. They're small shops for, um, um, you know, you'd be like plumbing businesses. They're basically startup capital to run sort of self-run organizations and businesses, mm -hmm. whether they come through the loans and banks or whether they come through friends and family. Whereas down here, I find like the language shifts down to like, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar yeah, so so hundred, sorry, hundred. So yeah, real micro enterprises is kind of. I always find the the it's more the me than the s in the in the in the language that's in there, and 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 I think I think it's a function of I think it, I mean it, I think it is a function of the different economies. You've got mm. to, you know that when you're in the main market, it's a much smaller thing. When I get into the when I get into the 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 more formalized economy, I actually don't think it's as entrepreneurial because I think there's such a big dominant. There's so many big dominant players in all the market spaces, mm -hmm. and I think oftentimes they crowd off the opportunity for more um, entrepreneurial space. Help me with what US. you're saying. Give me an example if you've got one at hand. There's six banks in the country. There are three cell phone companies. There's mm. one, maybe two liquor companies. There's uh, yeah, there's and a, like the market share of the big guys is disproportionately high relative to. Um, relative to what it would be in the States. Yeah, it feels to me that there's in almost, yeah, in, in almost every space, there's just these dominant players that are 50, 60, 75% of the market share. Mm. And they tend to just kind of create this massive gravity well for the rest of yeah. anybody else to go compete against. Whereas I find in the U.S. you can kind of, there's certainly, and there's stories in every industry of disruption and these big guys coming in, but I tend to find that it's easier to kind of nip at the, the sides of these guys and create steady business. And I think some of it is because there's 350 million people in a very wealthy nation. And down here is, you know, the formal economy is probably five to 10 million, maybe 15 million. I don't know what the actual number is, mm. but it's a much smaller market when it comes to be able to afford it. And it's a smaller country. And so, so I, I don't know, actually, I don't, I relate it, but the, from a feeling standpoint, it just doesn't feel like the entrepreneurial Winning in that more formal space seems to me as dynamic as it is in the U.S. Mm. And, so, and it's anecdotal. It's there may be statistics. There may be some guy on Twitter being like, he doesn't understand. Who's on the side? <laughs> I, I don't. Seriously, it's just really, backtracking there right now. No, no. Like, no well, it's, it's, it's my own personal journey in anecdotal. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I don't think I've done a lot of like rigorous research on it. Well, help me understand, guys. I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about backgrounds before we get into the problems that entrepreneurs face in South Africa, and the problems you faced, and yeah. then what you guys are doing about it. Let's start with you, Josh, and we'll get to you, Ross. Like, help me understand what is your background. You wanted to interject. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, I, I think there's a misnomer that um, entrepreneurs face a lot of problems in the country. This country is full of opportunity. Yeah, okay. like it's like if you, I think if you if you talk to people our age in the UK or wherever in the states, it's a different ball game. It is so hyper competitive. Your ability to your ability to eat at the edges and get greater sustainable business is far lower. Whereas here, because it is, there's just more opportunity, I think. That would be the way I'd think about it. Yeah, and you'll see us talk about that as we kind of tell our story. Because I find over and over again, and listen, there are, there are challenges that are only in Africa type challenges. Mm -hmm. But I find most of the narrative around those challenges... There's this, it's a, I almost talk about as grass is greener. You know, they somehow or other think that stuff doesn't exist overseas. Mm. And they somehow or other think that all the tailwinds they have down here, they'll have the same tailwinds overseas when it comes to, I mean, you can see it like things, I'll give you an example, like the regulatory environment down here. They're trying, they're trying to get more rigid and all that stuff. But man, if you look at some of the regulatory, just in restaurants alone in the U S it is just insane. Mm. The amount of hoops and sort of hurdles it's state level, federal level and city level. You've got to handle three different layers of sort of regulation and it's remarkably complex about how that stuff works. And down here it's, you, you know, get a, get a feel for a couple of things. You go do that stuff. So you'll find, I, I, yeah, I agree with Ross. I find that the opportunities down here are far greater. Now being able to take advantage of them, being able to kind of capture them, having the tools and resources and infrastructure to go back that stuff. No, that's a, that's a different discussion. Okay. <laughs> but when it comes to opportunity, just at the end of three years. Yeah, when it comes to opportunity, <laughs> when it comes to so the opportunities are there. You guys are feel feel that the opportunities are there, but uh, in terms of taking taking full advantage of those opportunities, 
that depends on, of course, the seat that you or the hat that you wear, right? Yeah, and we have some beliefs. We're testing them out. You know, yeah. Ross always says we'll know in a couple of years, uh-huh. uh, but we, we we have some we have some views about where that stuff is and what that space is looking like. Okay, take me back. Yeah. How did you get here? What's your journey to like why why be an entrepreneur? I mean, for heaven's sakes, you went to HBS. Like, yeah, so, surely. so my background is I'm an engineer by training and I got into, um, sort of consulting. Um, and my, my primary work in the U S was in, in retail supply chain initially. So, you know, I build like logistics systems for, you know, um, like big, big, big retail companies, you know, brands like Walmart and that stuff. Mm. And then I got, I, and then I got hired in the Miller brain company. And so did a lot of work kind of redesigning their kind of sales and marketing when, as when South African breweries bought them. Right. So in the, so I worked for a whole bunch of SA leadership and, um, and one of the guys I worked for came back to South Africa to kind of lead the, the South African turnaround. They had an issue and you know, most people know the story about, um, you know, they lost the two brands, Heineken and Amstel and, and this, this whole issue. And so they were still trying to kind of figure who they were out as a company and try to figure out what that meant because for the first time they weren't a monopoly. Mm. They were a de facto monopoly for 150 years. And then for the first time they had to do that. So I was brought down in this real sort of specific capacity to help with two or three problems that we were doing in the U S and, um, and, and I tell this story almost embarrassed because I was drag kicking and screaming when they asked me to come down here. I was like, there's not a, chance in how I might have used some more colorful language when I told them there's no way they're going to get me down here. They actually used the World Cup, which I'm not a soccer fan. So like I, <laughs> even that was like, I guess that's important. And so they, they were like, we promised that I was like, cool, you send me to like all the U.S. soccer matches, like, you know, I'll come down. And it was a six month project. And, um, and, and I fell in love with the country as a result of that. And well, I'm surprised you didn't fall in love with Rustenburg because that's where all the U.S. <laughs> games were, weren't they? Out there, I, have I, some, I have some, I have some other words for that town. <laughs> so, uh, but no, but it, and, and obviously, I mean, it was a very powerful time for the country. It was an amazing experience. I think, you know, the energy levels and the happiness were great, but it's more than that. I, the, my time at SAP was just awesome. Um, and they have a culture that is very unusual, but there's a lot of aspects about it. And, and so I, Came down here for six months and ended up staying at SAB for about two, three years and really enjoyed that time and experience. And then what I found was, and that's when I started sort of just getting into the weeds of the detail. And Ross and I met that first kind of, you know, that first year I was there. And, um, and that's when I kind of fell in love with South Africa, is the best way to describe it. And, um, and then the transition to entrepreneurial space, which I think is what you're asking. I don't think yeah, I was in that yeah. space. The transition to entrepreneurial space for us was I was sitting, being kind of a brash American, talking about how frustrated I was with the service model in this country. And, and, and I just got really frustrated with it. And there was a particular brand I went to all the time. And they just kept messing up over and over again. And it was just constantly amazing to me. And all my expat friends, you know, my South African colleagues didn't understand it. They just didn't, they couldn't understand or relate to it. And all my expat friends, it was just the one thing they all kind of whined about at the table was mm-hmm. like how terrible the service was down here. And think about it. It's a very generous country. It's very hospitable. There isn't fundamentally this antagonism. Like if you go to New York, there's this real edge to New York and mm-hmm. in certain big cities and down here, you don't have that. So why is service so falling apart? And we've, looked at this big brand and I got into the weeds of it because I just wanted a better experience. I was just getting so frustrated with the brand. <laughs> and what I found was um, the, what, the way that South Africans thought about service just was grounded on these beliefs about how you could structure your frontline teams to actually provide service. And they had all these kind of systems attached to it. And I was like, well, man, maybe that's something we could go after. That's an entrepreneurial space to chase. And then the burgers came up because the way I appreciate burgers and the way my American friends appreciate burgers is quite different than the way South Africans do it. And it's different. It's not better. It's just, it's a slightly different experience. And so we thought, well, nobody else is kind of chasing the burger space the way we are. They're doing it much more of this kind of gourmet style where they have lots of fancy toppings and these really kind of creative sandwiches. And we're like, in the U S it's a slightly different approach. And we were like, well, maybe there's a space for us in that food category. You know, people could still have both. Mm-hmm. And we think enough South Africans would like it based upon sort of our tests and so things. So that was the entrepreneurial kind of punt or moment. gas yeah. moment of that space. It was this belief that 
the 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 labor is not being they're not capturing the power and opportunity in the labor force to actually provide good customer service and we can talk you know ross and i will talk for a long time about what that is but the and this idea of like hey there's a food product out there that you know nobody else is doing so awesome. let's, let's try that space nice before we speak to you ross uh if you've just joined us frankly speaking is there a way to change south africa's economic challenges we're speaking to two very young passionate entrepreneurs about how the entrepreneurial space could potentially change South Africa's challenges. Um, we're speaking to Ross Essen and Josh Cherry from BGR. It is a pleasure to have you guys. Ross, just give us a little bit of your background. Uh, South African through and through uh, with a master's in economics, could have taken on the world, been anywhere, done anything, found yourself in advisory services, and then so left I did, it all. Yeah, so I did advisory services for sure eight to ten years. Um, that is a long doing, time. You know, being on that's a lot of blood and flesh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I did. I did advisory for eight to ten years, predominantly doing public sector work. And um, I think the attraction to doing advisory stuff is that you get at a young age you get access to things that promise you scale. Mm. You know, like you can you can you say can I it, participated yeah. in this thing and it was whatever impacted ten thousand people, whatever. Um, and I watched, I, you know, Josh and I, uh, I joined Josh about 12 months ago, 18 months ago. We've been friends for a long time and I've watched his entrepreneurial journey. And I got to a point where I felt like I, there's a, you know, we talk about it quite often. There's this quote from uh, Theodore Roosevelt that talks about being in the arena and scraping your knees, you know, and that, that there's, um, there's truth in being in the arena and making mistakes as opposed to sitting on the sitting in the spectator stands telling people what to do and for me i just got a point in my career journey which was like i actually want to test myself rather than um tell people what i think is the what i believe to be the right thing you know and that's where that's where i shifted and i'm i've i've got a development back i guess i've got a development background and the the labor model and how we are thinking about labor and its potential, its potential to be incredibly disruptive is something very, very attractive, attractive to me. So let's, let's understand from you guys what the problem with the labor market is and the labor models in South Africa, specifically in the retail space, you know, like give us a sense of, of, uh, you know, you spoke about it, Josh, uh, at a very, uh, high level in terms of, it was frustrating you, right? It was like frustrating you the hell out of you. What was going yeah, on? Drive me nuts. Drive you nuts, right? What What is it exactly that's driving you nuts? The apathy of the people serving. The no, I, don't, I think you must. I think. I think it's a. I think it's wrong to think about it in terms of there's a structure of the labor market that does X. The better way to think about it is what do what do South African businesses believe consumers want and what are they chasing okay so South African businesses if you look at if you look at them are incredibly effective at um, getting good supply chains so they can get you your product onto a shelf they can get you they, they can make sure it's available to you and the labor force at is a really ex- good price at a really good price other than competitive yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain, <laughs> there was a question mark there. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can segue into that disc- yeah. argument on a different time but, but anyhow the pro the if that's your belief which is getting things available at a good price your labor your labor force becomes an extension of that machinery so in the same way you need a truck running getting something from point a to b in a particular period of time the person handing it over to the customer is just an extension of the same rationale right you know and so your um and that's and that's a belief. That's a conviction of I think of many businesses in the country, based around legacy as well. That the labor there's so much labor around that you know you don't actually have to worry about them, right? Yeah, and I I, I also think that I mean it's a it's a framing as far as experience. If you haven't experienced a high quality labor, you probably don't demand it. And so what I find is is the labor down here is when you have speaking hospitality and customer facing when you. I find most South Africans are ridiculously tolerant of all of the, in in the U.S. we would call almost like um, service microaggressions. And I find South Africans are incredibly patient. So I'll give an example. They can stand patiently in line while the till people at various lines 
fumble their way with one customer with no sense of urgency. Mm. And in the U.S., everybody would be like screaming at that tail person. <laughs> yeah. And they'd be like, get your act together, get somebody out, get her out of the line. I mean, you'll find that far more sort of anxious impatience in the, in the expectations. I find that repeated mistakes, there's a very low tolerance for that. And some of that is competitive because there's so many food offerings often in an area that if you don't like somebody, you can just go to somebody else. Like it's very easy to go sort that stuff out. And mm-hmm. some of it is, is, and so I find South Africans just don't demand that stuff. And I, and I think the reason for it is, is I think their expectation on what is possible is relatively low. Mm-hmm. I think they see the labor side as what well. their job is to kind of flip hamburgers, Pack take my money, arms. punch these codes in, put stuff in boxes. I can't expect much more out of that. And so I can't be more demanding of that service because that's the best they can do. You know, it's so And, that, and I maybe, you know, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Karen, finish up. What were you saying? Sorry. These are, I, I keep always saying this is, these are anecdotal observations. Course, yeah. This is not a, you know, but, but as I watch it, that's, and, and I talk to my, all my South African friends and colleagues, they, they always think they're like, man, you, you're promising something more than South Africans probably don't want. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. Sorry, yeah. I'll tell one more story. And that's go, for story. It, go for it, please. So when we were at SAB, there's this concept of like building fridges a certain way. Mm-hmm. And when we were, when I was at SAB, and we we were like in the U.S. is a very successful system, and SAB is like it's not going to work in South Africa. And we were trying to go push it through, and we we drew diagrams, we we showed pictures, we gave all sorts of economic models, and and you could just see a resistance to it because they were so comfortable in the way they built mm-hmm. fridges a certain way. And one day my boss just lost his patience and he shipped in like 20 fridges, put it in the lobby of the, of the, of the thing, brought in like five trucks of beer, built the fridges the way they were supposed to. And the moment you experienced the difference, the moment people could walk all 20 fridges and see and feel the difference, it snapped. Mm. And everybody's like, oh, you're right. This is way better. doesn't matter how many pictures and shots like that. The moment you experience it, it was way better. And the moment it flipped on them, SAB is such a talented organization, the whole country flipped in like three weeks. Mm. It's an unbelievable execution. We would have never seen that in the United States. Mm. That's how good they were because they were really good at supply chain and executing. But when it comes to the experience, and so my view is, is like oftentimes South Africans, once you start giving them that feel, you give them this sense, they start to demand it of others. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know anybody out there that's fighting for customer service on behalf of customers. And so therefore the standards are lower and the labor expectations are lower. Ross, you felt that as well as a, from a South African perspective, you spent some time in the States. Do you feel yeah, like there's a difference? I think it's amazing when you go to the States and you, know, you do a retail, you go, you go looking at clothes or you go, you go to a food store, or whatever the attention and not invasive attention, just that so the people are aware they're there to host you. They're there to support you. And they know what you're doing and they're there to make it as easy as it can be. Whereas I think in South Africa, you either don't have that and it's, hey, I'm going to just try my luck and work through the maze of whatever this thing is. Mm. Or you get the counter, which is like this fawning attention of like every <laughs> every 30 seconds, somebody's like, hey, how are you doing? You're like, well, the food's still cold. But then 30 <laughs> seconds, I'm still waiting for my food. And 30 seconds later, how are you doing? Like, there's no problem solving. There's no... There's no I guess empathy to what like the customers kind of trying to experience. You know, you know what pisses me off about South African, and it might even be universal, is this idea that you have, uh, and I'm now talking about restauranteering, and you have a waiter. The waiter is there to serve and 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 look after your table. And then there's this weird manager moment where this weird guy who, who, who you've yeah. never seen or interacted with comes along and. Interrupts you again to say, "Sorry, I just want to check. Is everything okay at this table? Did my did my team screw up? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like this. That, that's a positive thing. Like, yeah, yeah. He's just checking on. Yeah, you know, yeah. And it's normally that he and you know, like I'm just like, dude, please just leave. Like you're killing me here. You know, like the person who is sorting out this table is nailing it. You. You're the problem, you know? So, sorry, that's just my bug. I should yeah, even mention that. There's a very well... <laughs> no, no, what you're talking about is great. So there's a very well-known uh, restaurateur in the U.S., a guy named Danny Myers. He started Shake Shack, and he has a phrase all the time. And his phrase is, service is done to somebody. Hospitality is done for somebody. Mm, interesting. And this wow. flipping language, I find down here, service down here is highly mechanical. It's this, like you said, check in every 30 minutes. Manager's got to make sure he touches every table Mm. in a service, you know, every time the table turns are in there. And Ross's view is, is you find in the U.S. there is much greater orientation around what is this person here for? What are we doing for that person? Mm. Um, And 
and so, and the beauty of it is because that's the, that's when we say there's entrepreneurial opportunity. Imagine this. This is a space that is well established in the United States. And down here, we don't, we, there's, I don't, I actually struggle finding companies that really want to fight for this as a way to bring more customers into their area. And so, so when we say fight for this, it feels like the point of departure. So what do you, what do you consider your best customer service experience? I'm being put on the spot here. Yeah. Right? So what do you, yeah, pops what, like, what is, what is the thing okay. that you go uh, to? And we just said high standards. So yeah. We didn't do that. Uh. No, seriously, we didn't yeah. do that. What, what, what would have popped your in if we started What's the, So I'll tell you. So as soon as Josh started speaking about America, I, I started to get a bit defensive because I was like, hold on, I've had some pretty shocking experiences in America as oh, well. Oh yeah, no, no, no. without a doubt. So I'll give you two, two, one good one, one bad one, right? The bad one was Trader Joe's. Oh yeah, Trader Joe's. Good one or bad one? A bad one. It uh, was a bad one. Yeah, yeah. It was it, it, Trader Joe's is basically a convenience store. Uh, I mean, what would you say? Pick and pay. Pick and no, pay? I always say Woolworths is a combination of Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. Okay, that's, that's right. how I describe that's, Woolworths. That's, that's good. So, um, so Trader Joe's has this weird service thing where there's a green line and a red line, and then there was a guy holding a flag with a green flag and a red flag telling you where to go, and I got confused, and it was just weird. It was probably me more than them, to be honest. Best service experience had to be at the Apple Store. Um, in New York, Fifth, Fifth Avenue or whatever it was, it was ridiculous. Uh, the Apple Watch had just come out. There were thousands of people in that store and literally revolving and they had it on lockdown. I mean, they were attentive. They, they said, okay, uh, Josh is coming to, to help you out right now and l- just stand over there and literally two minutes later, a guy named Josh walked up. Now, either everyone's name is Josh in that store and they worked it out perfectly but it was brilliant. Like they knew what you wanted. They had a very in-depth understanding of what the product was. You could see that they had used the product, which is which is fantastic. And they had a sense of pride, which I think is really important. Um, but in a so in a South African context, who do you go to because the service is superior to its competitors? Poof. Can I think about it and I'll let you know. Yeah. That's a that's a. That's I mean, a that's a question. question that you could ask yourself. Like what. Because there are a couple that I can think of. Tell me what yours what yours are, because obviously like the guys, the, the guys, I, I, the, not to plug any particular, any particular company, but I think Investec Banking's customer service is phenomenal in comparison to the other the other four the other four banks. It's I, not even I close. Bank of Capitec, you know, and I, the premium that they charge on their monthly subscription is worth my time. Massively. Why do they get it right? What's what's the thing? Because they they have given. So I'll give you an example. I tried to. I I had a credit card with one of the other guys, and it took me twelve months to cancel it. Twelve months of trying to. Hey, I've moved to this other bank. I no longer want to use your service. Please, can I cancel it? Mm. And the reason is is that their systems don't allow those guys to make decisions. Whereas within with Investec, which is you know it's much more tertiary. The guy that you're talking to can actually input something and mm. make it happen. And if he's made a mistake, he either's, he's gonna there will be repercussions for him. But it's not my problem; it's the talent management problem internally. Right. So let's bring it back slightly because we've been yeah, we, I feel we, like we, we were pushed off to t- customer service, which I think is part of where you guys the lens in which you bring right. Um, you know, Ross, I was interested in what you were saying earlier about the idea of South African companies see the labor pool as just an extension of their supply chain management. And I suppose what that then leads to is a whole bunch of people who are uh, underappreciated, undervalued, and are just seen as almost robotic, that they are the final uh, yeah. the final cog in this in the supply chain management. Help me understand, like, how does this affect South Africa and the economy? I mean, give me a sense of where well, you so- see so what I find fascinating is that you've got so you, you've obviously got um, you've got two you've got two economies you've got an employed economy you've got an unemployed economy right right so there's the first distinction and the second thing is that of that employed economy a vast majority of those guys are on minimum wage and they've got very little opportunity to grow that minimum wage mm. and so through collective bargaining it goes up five percent or whatever it is every year but fundamentally. Their position in this. Sorry, I'm getting very economic, geeky economics. No, that's okay. I'm laughing. That's okay. He's like, he's asked you a question. It's like, how do you solve like this major labor issue in the country? Like, no, no, he's intense, doing well. That's it's an okay. It's question. Okay. Keep it's going. Okay. Um, those guy, the those guys at that level 
of the labor force have got no ability to grow their productivity and hence their payment. Mm. And there's no way, there, there's no mechanisms to make that happen. And what I've like, I think the stats about, I think the stat about um, the difference between university unemployment and um, non-university unemployment yeah. is, fascin- is a fascinating argument about that, which is um, unemployment among university graduates is 67%. Whereas employment rates of people from 18 to 35, employment, not unemployment, because you get into all these mm. all these bullshit economic things about participation or whatever. But basically, it's less than one in three people are employed aged 18 to 35. Mm. But Andrew asked a different question, which I would just is in there, which is we believe that the labor force has basically been turned into a commodity. It's a mechanization, extension of the mechanization of the supply chain and the efficiencies that come from that. And the belief that customer service is not something to invest in. What I think happens as a result of that is, is you, you turn the labor force into this mechanical thing. And so what you're training and focusing on is a set of route mechanizations to-do lists, a series of things that occur. And that makes their ability to kind of contribute to anything other than that one task they're trained for very low. Mm. And so you've now got a labor force that is rather unadaptable. It's unflexible. It's locked into that. If you want to move them to a new job, you basically have to teach them the new set of like hand movements and checklists and all that stuff to go into that space. And my find that 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 creates a real challenge to the vibrancy of that labor pool. So you've got a massive labor pool that's treated as a commodity and they're not you can't use them other places because they're almost locked in to one particular solution. So that's interesting what you're talking about there because I think um it's the labor force that actually has no value, but the humans that populate that labor force are severely undervalued, right? Massively. Their potential is massive, but what they're asked to do in their day-to-day jobs leads them to being just completely mechanized and totally, totally uh, <laughs> undervalued and under-resourced and like, just going nowhere. So one of, my, one of the most famous examples in the U.S. about a guy is Henry Ford and about how he paid people enough to go pay a car. That was the whole story that's in there. Do you know the background of that story? <laughs> Tell me. The reason why he had to pay people was because the job was so boring and so route that there was literally he was getting a turnover rate of two to three hundred percent. Wow! <laughs> and so this is a situation where he had to—he just kept raising the rates to the point where he could pay them enough to basically suffer through this miserable job where they had to like move a hammer every single time. And then they were like, "Oh my god, this guy's like this amazing guy!" Because he kept trying to hand this productivity down to them to the point where it's in that space. It's this, yeah. So anyway, sorry. I feel no, like no, that's I, good. I feel that's like good. this language around the labor force is is this one of very very low expectations yeah we, we often use this discussion like prejudice of low expectations which is mm. you know someone who's at a someone who's entry-level job is only capable of of being a server or a whatever you know and that's they are they are um prescribe that future for the rest of their days mm. <laughs> i mean and it's self-reinforcing the moment you put them in a limited job the moment you sort that limited job back so, so the moment you put them in a limited job, the moment you you um, you limit their ability to be successful, so you don't give them any sense of autonomy. What ends up happening is is you almost re- it's a self fulfilling prophecy. What about the other side of this this, this discussion? Um, and if you've just joined us, we, we're speaking to the guys from BGR, Ross Essen, and Josh Cherry about what we can do to change South Africa's economic challenges. What about the other guys in this in this conversation? Because I'm definitely with you. Uh, have to say that uh, as a broadcaster you're supposed to be unbiased I'm absolutely not I agree 100% (laughs) but you can imagine that there are South African owners entrepreneurs and even CEOs of of these big businesses who have major labor pools going no but these people can't do this Um, and you know like these these, Ross you're joking if you think that you can allow people with that kind of education level and skill level to get into a job and actually expect them to do more I don't think you're going to solve this problem by focusing on trying to solve the labor market if your belief is that the best way of serving your customer is getting them something onto a shelf by the, the, the natural logical progression is your labor will be an extension of whatever that supply chain is going to be. Mm. So the real question is, do you think that South Africans or 
do you think that your consumers are going to prefer having a better customer experience? So when they have two products that are exactly the same, they are going to choose something that gives them a better a better customer experience. Because if you don't believe that, if you believe it's only price, it's only price and availability, then you've not incentivized at all to go and deal with to not change this idea of that labor is an extension of your of your mm. and we can talk about like is that right or is it not right etc etc but our belief is that consumers if they get faced with two choices are by nature like going to choose the thing that gives them a better experience it's a premium that they are receiving for that product and then if that's the case and you're going you believe that's your competitive moat you can't afford to have a, a labor force that's just an extension of your supply chain because you can't deliver on the thing that allows you to be different to what your competitors are. So how are you guys... And, and just so we just, I'll add one more thing <laughs> just to add to that. Because when you sit there and say, these big guys do X, Y, and Z, I'm like, yeah, when we started, we spent a lot of energy across the industry saying, hey, we want to do customer service. And response was... It's not important. Customers don't care about it. You don't understand. It's you can't get it to work. And my response is cool. As long as they continue to think that, that's a real competitive mode for us because yeah, yeah. now we can actually differentiate ourselves. Like I don't have to go play their game. Especially in, in I mean, you guys have chosen a really interesting industry and and a burger for heaven's sakes. You know, you would imagine that the customer service expected at a burger joint isn't very high. I mean, if you think of your, your competitors being a McDonald's or a Steers, they just punch in. They're like, beep, beep, beep. Yeah, well, you know, give me the we, Wacky Wednesday. That's yeah, the cheap and, one. And our, you know? our core customer probably at this point probably puts us more in referencing us to like Rock Moms, which is still the same thing. It's this highly dynamic, really kind of creative, entertaining space. Right. And, and we're, we're always, we try to like dial down to the essence of what it is. We always kind of keep ourselves basic but high quality. But... It's, it's fascinating you say that because we talk all the time. The industry speaks service differently than we do. Mm. So when we think about service, what we think about service is, first off, um, efficiency is incredibly important. And so we're, we make things to order. So we do not – it's not like McDonald's where they got like your burger already sitting back there. Mm. They got 20 Big Macs and you know they're going to pull one out for everybody that walks in. And so what we want is we want the experience. We believe that consumers are very time – they do time math which is very common in the U.S., it's very common in other parts, and we believe it exists down here. And that is when you're making a choice, you're going to choose how much it is, the quality of the food, and how long it's going to take. <laughs> and you might, you know, you add to that, like, the experience you have if you're sitting in store. And so you're going to go out on Valentine's Day, you don't want that thing to be a 20-minute <laughs> meeting. You want that thing to be three hours. You want the ambiance to be and, amazing. And I, sorry, just to support yeah. what you're saying, I think that there's, that's the same on any purchasing decision, which is what it is, mm. what is its price, what is its quality and how long does it take you to get it? Why is Amazon becoming huge, why is yeah. Amazon becoming huge? It's because of fundamentally because of a, uh, there's a pricing advantage, but there, there is also a huge convenience advantage where you can click it in onto your computer and it's 24 hour delivery at the moment. Depends whatever where it you is. are in the country. You know, you it's not as if <laughs> it's not as if this is like a moonshot here. You know, mm. you, there are far, there's tons of precedent internationally that says no consumers do want do want all these things that josh is talking about and yeah and whereas i think when you listen to people in our space which is food but even in other areas their sense of services how flourish they are and nice with you and these different Mm. like they say hello to you in these really nice ways and they have the manager check in and they have all these guys come around and i mean i use the manager check in all the time as an example i'm like their belief in services is they're like constantly asking you how we're doing Yes, I'm, I cannot. And my view of services, I think we should you, do a show just on that. Get it? Managers are on yeah, like, Oaks, please can stop, stop this, doing stop that. It, like, stop. Yeah, but the question is, I mean, like, I when when I get into the depths of the call center ecosystem, my fundamental question is like, can you solve my problem? Mm. This is my problem. This is what I think is going to be the solution. Can you solve it? So not like and nine times out of ten, the answer is no. Yeah, they just so like the. the and I think that's the discussion. It's like if you believe if you believe guys are going to pay a premium, are you going to equip your guys to be able to go and say, "Cool, let's get you the best service possible," and give them enough agency to be able to do stuff like solve your problems? With the exception, I would say probably a half a percent to us or smaller 
a half a percent or smaller of customers that we have have unreasonable requests. Just about every other request we have as an organization fundamentally is incredibly reasonable. May not be other restaurateurs will not think it's reasonable, but nine times that I'm like, yeah, it sounds like a fair ask, right? Seems pretty reasonable what you guys are asking for it. And I, I find like customers down here are really reasonable about what their needs are and what they're looking for. And and nine times out of ten, I'm like, I my guys can solve that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is this is relatively low risk. You know, I mean, we can wire this thing in. So so this idea is you you wire an organization it's like companies like Investec and all that stuff to think about service more as you came in for a reason. Our job is to make sure that we make that reason as a, as a quick and as effective as possible. And if you ever run into a problem for any reason, we should be able to fix it. So help me understand now. We've been speaking uh, about a number of a range of issues. It sounds like you guys have locked into a really interesting uh, labor um what we call labor model, I suppose, around um, how you see the people that work with you. Yep. What is that like? How different is it to to traditional spaces? Give me a sense of of what it is, and then let's let's pull it apart and see how different it is and how that might actually change South Africa's future. So, I'll start, but Ross will actually probably add most of the Christmas trees. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I'll put I'll put the Christmas tree out there, and Ross will put the ornaments on. Let me just. Okay. Let me, BGR fundamentally is driven on this idea of what they refer to as an inverted labor model. And so what you do is you put as much responsibility as possible to the frontline team and you make them the top of the pyramid. So right now you've got the CEO and you've got the managers and directors and area managers and they kind of thing. And, and the, even the, the laws are about who's your manager and who's supporting this and all this. And well, we, it really is a Christmas tree. Huh? Yeah, that's, that's the normal model. We flip the Christmas tree upside down. And so the day behind is the star is the person closest to the customer. And then everybody behind them's job is to make them successful. And so they're, they're no longer in charge of the people up front. They're sitting behind them saying, you do not have the tools to be successful. You haven't been trained. You haven't been supported to be in there. And they're also seeing if the right people are there. So sometimes you don't have people that are able to survive in that space. But the idea behind it is their role switches. Um, we often use soccer as a reference. And so the way we think about it is, is the players win the game. They're the on the field. They're the ones that pick the soccer ball in. The manager is not playing the game. The manager is the coach. They're sitting aside. They're trying to make them successful. But at the end of the day, the people winning is the frontline team. And so when we refer to an inverted labor model, you have to start with that position. That the team you put are the team at the front line are the ones that are going to win that game. So the, the obvious question for me, um, before we get the, the, the sprinkles on yeah. top from Ross uh, to you, Josh, is if we go back to the soccer model, is the soccer players get paid the most. Yep. Right? How does that work in terms of your inverted model? Because clearly in, in the traditional thing, the CEO gets paid the most yeah. and then the person closest to the customer often gets paid the least. So right? we'll give you two statistics that I find all the time. So um, typical in the industry, it's about 40 to 45% of total, total, labor, cost. total labor costs in a restaurant food industry. So, so they, they range between 15 to 19% of total labor expense. That's the food of revenue. And of that, about 40 to 45% of that is captured by the management team. So my favorite example is, is one of the big chains. They have 32 people total that work in a very busy location that does about 1.2 million rand in turnover a month. So that's, that's, that's a sense of what it's in. Of those 32, 40% is captured by six individuals. Mm. That's the senior leadership, the, the, you know, that's that whole orientation. So what ends up happening is, is because they capture all that value, all this responsibility, decision-making, priority shifts up to them. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that, that's in there. And so it's the equivalent of in a soccer field, the, the, the coach decides when to pass and who to pass to. And, and the guy has to look over every time. He's like, can I do this? Because he hasn't gotten permission because <laughs> the guys on the side are telling him what to go do. And our view is like, no, no, no. So you flip it. So the first thing is, is you flip the model. And so you say, okay, we, you do need a leadership structure. So it's not like you don't need leadership. But what you do is you take one, two, no more. And then you, and then you take the value that those guys have and you share it with everybody down below. So they're now doing the work, they're collectively doing it, and you take the value. What we do is we try to link that value to the performance of the store. So it's very, we have very profitably generous incentive systems. 
and it is. Give me a sense. I mean, I, I know you don't want to get into the numbers, but just give me a sense of how that looks and what that feels like. Because I think, you know, people listening to the show will be like, okay, it's it's all good and well. You know, no. you can say that, but like, no, what is you, it really? No, so like? we can give you the numbers. So, so we we pay on an entry level wage. Um, so there's there's three ways to think about a business, right? So in that space, so the first thing is you come in at one level. How fast through the ranks? Mm. of a restaurant pay cycle because it's 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 collective bargaining how fast through the ranks can you move up and you're going to start as like a catering assistant wiping tables how fast you move into like grill cook cashier right so that's the first question for us it's reg- it's structured so within six months you're out of the assistant role you're right into a cashier role within 12 24 months you're an assistant manager role and so you have a very structured in fact if you don't make that path we're going to, it's a, it's, you're, it's probably not an industry you're going to want to succeed in. Like it's not a place. So our view is like, you guys can all be assistant managers. So, so the first question is how fast you go to those roles. So what we do is we pay basically the minimal wages to all those, but once you can very rapidly get into a, a wage level that are very rare in restaurants. So you won't have a lot of restaurants. That's, that's number one. Number two is, um, the incentive structure allows you to take on, in addition to that, as much as 50 to 75% above and beyond your base wage. Mm. And so in addition to getting a relatively reasonable wage relatively quickly, you also can almost, you know, uh, half, you get half as much, if not as much more. And, and it's revenue based, which means that the performance of the store does better. You can actually exceed double your take home pay on that space. And the way you do that is, is you don't have as many people on the team and they and they and it's and you and you get them to fight for the customer experience so the revenue numbers go up so in restaurants which is a big difference restaurants do um they do commission based so the first thing is is the it's a fixed expense line item for the restaurateur so they've got this commission number they've got to tipping and that's all they're obligated to and there's Mm. some other minimums they've got to go do and then it's tipping and so I think the I mean I think the discussion is and how we structured and stuff but the real the real discussion is you are the team gets uh, um, gets a, a share of the revenue base which is and we'll shift them to a profit share going yeah, forward actually, it effectively works out to be 20-25% of the profit of the store so um, and that is and what's and that gets, but it's built on this collective performance of the team, and the team can decide how that gets allocated amongst individuals. And so you don't have a situation where I'm like, you know, putting your head below the water to show that I'm ahead of everybody else. It's fundamentally driven by how the team deals with each other. Um, and the only, and I think, I mean, we can get into the payment structures and all of that stuff, but I think the real question is. What do you need to, if you believe that, um, if you believe that there is this competitive moat doing, focusing on, on service, what do you need to believe of labor to be able to achieve that? Because if you believe that everybody's the same and that there's a queue of, there's a queue of, um, there's a queue of unemployed people all wanting a job and they're exactly the same and they've got exactly the same low talent base. You won't be able to execute on that on a better customer service thing. And so, like from my advisory background, whenever I went into frontline staff, we used to go and basically we'd go and build three capacities, which is can how do you prioritize things? So you've got a thousand tasks in front of you. How do you choose the one that's going to have the biggest reward in the quickest amount of time? The second thing is like how do you problem solve? So something happens what's the cause of that thing and you know and how do you how do you identify them the actual cause not the symptom of the problem and the third is communication of people those are three um those are three skill sets that are applicable to any environment and it's not a restaurant discussion it's it's any space whether you're talking like as high a corporate space as you want to the most like if you're in the front of a mine <laughs> Those are the things that you, those are the skill sets that you need in order to, when you have customer A come up with a problem, and that problem is different to you coming up and having a problem, having a team that is systematically able to to solve that, 
um, requires those skill sets. And those aren't skill sets that get taught in high school. They're not skill sets that get taught in university. But those are the things that fundamentally, and we can get into, I mean, you can go far more, in far more depth about education. But um, those are skill sets that allow you to go from being this commodified extension of a, of a supply chain machinery to somebody that is like their, your productivity immediately grows if you can have those skills. And, and their skills. Like the, the beauty of burgers is it's not rocket science. This is a relatively basic thing. And so you can focus on problem solving. It's not like a bunch of engineers trying to get Apollo 13 astronauts down from the moon, right? I mean, there's, there's different problem solving skills here. And the reality is, is you can, you can force problem solving even at that level. It's obviously not as complicated, doesn't require the technical expertise, but you can still sit there and say, guys, this is a problem you can solve. Okay. We've got 10 yeah. minutes left of this, this podcast, which is flown Sorry. by because you guys are, Pumping information into which is fantastic, but let's take it out of burgers for a second. Let's take it out of um, out of even the retail space, um, or maybe not the retail space. Let's let's take it out of burgers for one second. How could someone listen to the show? Go wow, okay. So maybe there is a way in which I can actually relook at my business. What what do I need to do? I mean, because you're two very very clever guys. You you've obviously thought about this a lot. You're practicing. You're prototyping all the time. That's a good question. How, how does someone listening to this go, flipping hell, man? I've got my small little business. There's three people in it, or there's four people in it, and we sell, you know, mechanical parts, and these guys on the shop floor, blah, 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 and I have high turnover, and, 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 and turnover of staff, I mean. Um, how do we change the space in South Africa for entrepreneurs to think differently about the labor market? So, I've got two things that I think are worthwhile. The first is, set a standard of performance that you want people to reach, right? And support them in reaching that standard. So give them an ability to grow into that space and not because, hey, Josh, you're a lovely person and you're the diamond in the rough, but actually set an objective standard that says this is what a high-performing person in my organization looks like. These are their responsibilities. These are their duties. These are their whatever they are. And acknowledge the fact that people aren't necessarily able to perform at that level today, but if you can give them some level of structure and some level of constant feedback and some level of performance management, the likelihood is that you'll be able to get them into that space relatively quickly. And once you do, you get benefit. And I would add, be mentally prepared to be both surprised because you'll be amazed what people, when you set the standard, actually raise to it. And also be disappointed because you're going to have people you think could make it and aren't necessarily going to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number and, two. And I think the second thing is not to, th- I think the responsibility for entrepreneurs is not to go and hunt for the diamond in the rough that is like, Hey, if only I find the right person is to actually invest in, in invest in creating stuff that says anybody that comes in this process, there will be people that will fall off the ladder but actually, as long as I build a good ladder, I'll get enough people into the pipeline, given how many people are out there that are looking for jobs that are doing, that are, that are wanting to participate in the economy. And for me, that's the two, those are the two, and that goes from entrepreneurs through to the biggest corporates, which is, you know, deliberately investing in your labor force so that you can get a better return going forward. Mm. Josh? It's a really good question. Like it's, I, th- I think I about try to ask one good question. Yeah, show. That's, that's my okay. thing. That's that's your goal. It's, a, it's a really good question. Cause <laughs> it's I, my standard. Hey? I mean, I think if you want to synthesize it out, it probably gets back to, um, it really does get to what Ross is talking about, which is raise expectations, believe that that stuff can occur. And we are consistently, it's consistently proven that there's more than enough capacity in this country to go meet those expectations. I mean, one of the advantages of, one of the advantages of having like a completely shit and dysfunctional secondary and tertiary education system is you've got access to people that should be actuaries, doctors, engineers, accountants, all of that stuff. They have the talent to be that, but they haven't been able to go through a system that allows mm. them to be that person. What an incredible, incredible insight. I mean, that is just a, another, like a completely different way of thinking about it. No one is thinking like that. That actually, there is an entire workforce of people that should be doctors and actuaries, Valid and have been let down by the education system. That's the difference. That is the difference. 
And those people are There's eager a lot. To, to be something. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There are a lot of them. South Africa is full of exceptionally interesting, high potential people. Yeah, we see it all the time. <laughs> so is this a case, you know, we talk about the inversion of the triangle. <clears throat> Getting people to assistant managers. Do you believe that this is the way we can get out of the major South African challenges? At least a we, path to. Let's, exactly. let's let's not let's not you know. Yeah, if you think about it, it's not like live. There's a lot of problems, no, 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 right? No, so, no, if you think about it, there's like a series of avenues. You've got tertiary education. You've got technical training through various like technicons and all that stuff. What we believe is is that if there there is this space where you could basically develop labor capacity or competency I, I hate the capacity is kind of like this econ term but you can basically get this labor force skilled up in a way that they can contribute to um, not only this is you know the company that they're involved with but oftentimes those skills translate back into the market I mean the question is why do you why the thing that I've the thing that just flummoxes me is why are we relying on all these parallel education structures? Because education is a, a, a means of increasing productivity. You can get into the, I want to study French for the sake mm. of existential fulfillment. But f- fundamentally, from an, economic, <laughs> from an economic perspective, right? from an economic perspective, education is about a way of improving your productivity. Mm. And why are we relying on all these external institutions to do it when... The, when the employers have an opportunity and an incentive to do so, you know why not do that? Like, mm. What's stopping the? What what is the constraint that stops people from doing that? Because it's, it's outsourcing. You know, well, you well, know, I should a, only take university it's students. It's an effort, isn't it, Ross? I mean, isn't that the big thing? It's an effort. Like people are like, well, the effort of. Taking someone from zero to hero is such an effort. It's going to be big, you know. Yeah. What's your feeling on that? I'm just not sure it is that big. I don't. I'm not yes. sure it is that big an effort. I think your returns are so disproportionately high. There's, I mean, you can look at you can look at all these. T- sorry, I'm going to throw some stats. The first question is right. Um, Treasury's doing this. Treasury's doing this. Was I don't know if it's stopped now, but last year it was doing a, a program that was trying to push internships in, in, in proper formal corporates. And the basis of that was, if you are employed for longer than 12 months, you've got an 80% chance of maintain, remaining in the labor market. Mm. Because there's certain, there's behavioral stuff. It's like, you know, are you coming to work on time? All these kind of things. Yeah. And as soon as you get over that first 12-month stepping stone, you are completely different to the one in three people that have got a job. Yeah, mm. you the same. Yeah, you know I mean the two out of three people that don't have a job. Yeah. Your 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 future, your destiny, all that stuff's locked down for a twelve month thing. <laughs> Surely you're versus all that, these yeah. management overheads of like when you when you don't have people participating in your company, you've got to go with them with a whip and you know command and control, pay disproportionate amounts of money to those guys because that's also a crap job to do. You know, like that's what I'm trying to get my head around. Mm. Josh Sorry, has, I just Josh Andrew's looking to at me. Josh Andrew's has looking, to add. Andrew's looking at me, and I, I, I just, I think in many ways, I tend to be, I tend to be hesitant to throw too much, sort of, because I still feel like a bit of an outsider here. One of the things that I always reference when guys talk about the discussion, and I don't know if this is contributed to it, is I, I find the language. There's this belief around labor um, capability and growth and all that stuff that that doesn't match my experience in the US. I'll give, I'll give you one of my favorite examples, mm. which is we have a product, fries. Fries, believe it or not, are like a real pain in the ass. Like if you don't cook them exactly right, you can very easily screw that product up. And then you've, you've all been to restaurants where that's in the space. The, the machine that we use to fix that is this really complicated machine that was designed. And it was designed by McDonald's for the US market. <laughs> it wasn't designed for the South African market. It was designed for the U.S. market because they had massive inconsistencies with the talent pool in the U.S. market. Right. So I, I, you know, I, I find that when 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 the market when people get into this market and when they get into this discussion around how you transform the labor in this avenue, I find that if you spend a little bit of energy being like, okay, we'll make a small investment in this piece of equipment, yeah, it's a little more expensive than the rest of the market. You can 
you don't have a problem anymore because you've you've structured this thing so it's not as much work to get your team to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so you spend a little bit of energy up front thinking about it. It's not that much more work. I love I love what you're saying, and and unfortunately we're going to have to start. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, but I really I don't know if that's the best last note to end. No, with. no, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> McDonald's fries. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah, where you need to go. Like, you know, like. could have done better. I'm sorry. <laughs> you really could have, Josh. Work on that, bro. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Work, on, work on it. Um, no, but I love I love what you're saying about the inverted triangle and actually pushing a lot of responsibility onto the most important people, which are the people closest to your customers. And I think we can all learn from that. Uh, we can all try and thrive from that. And I think I believe that what you guys are saying is that that is a way in which we can solve some of the major SA tr- uh, challenges is not only empowering uh, people at the coalface, but also trusting a little bit more. And I think that's really, really important. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for your time. I look forward to seeing more of you. I, I think there's going to be more to come from these two gentlemen. If you haven't uh, experienced uh, their, their incredibleness yet, go check out BGR there in Rosebank. Um, have a burger. And uh, and give them some feedback. Tell them what you think. And, and tell their staff what you think because they'll be able to fix it straight away. So thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of this, it's a fascinating discussion about how entrepreneurship could change and potentially build on some of the massive uh, South African uh, inefficiencies and, and challenges that we face. It's a part of a series. If you've missed any of it, you can check out Zuelan Zimavavi. You can also check out our education podcast as well. All you need to do is go to cliffcentral.com forward slash frankly speaking. And there will be more next week. Let's go have a burger, guys. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, Andrew. This is cliffcentral.com.